1: and welcome to Nightlight. Thanks so much for sharing part of your evening with us. We greatly appreciate your time and the fact that you share such a precious element of your life with us. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing introduction. His voice will absolutely resonate through time and he is an amazing man. If you can check him out, please do because he has a message and a gift that is really quite profound. My guest tonight, is one of my favorite people. I have Laird Scranton on with us, and we're going to be talking about um, one of his books, one of his many books, I might point out, called Point of Origin, Gobekli Tepe and the Spiritual Matrix for the World's Cosmologies. It explains how the carved images on Gobekli Tepe's stone pillars were the precursors to the sacred symbols of the Dogon Egyptians, Tibetans, and Chinese as well as the matriarchal sakti cult of ancient Iran and in India. He identifies Göbekli Tepe as a remote mountain sanctuary of higher knowledge alluded to in the sakti myth, named named an important temple in Egypt and defined in ancient Buddhist tradition as vulture peak. He reveals how Göbekli Tepe's enigmatic H carvings and animal symbolism symbolic of stages of creation, was presented as a kind of prototype of written language accessible to the hunter-gatherers who inhabited the region. And he shows how the myths and deities of many ancient cultures are connected linguistically, extending even to the name Gobekli Tepe and the Egyptian concept of Zep Tepe, the, the mythical age of first time for the Egyptians. Um, he details how symbolic elements at Gobekli Tepe link a pre Vedic cult in India to cosmological myths and traditions in Africa, Egypt, Tibet, and China. And we're going to talk about how carved animal images at Gobekli Tepe relate to stages of creation and provide an archaic foundation for symbolic written language. He defines how classical elements of ancient Egyptian myth and religion characterized an archaic cosmological tradition that links ancestry back to Gobekli Tepe. He's an independent software designer who became interested in Dogon mythology and symbolism in the early 90s, and he has studied ancient myth, language, and cosmology since 97 and has been a lecturer at Colgate University. He also appears in John Anthony West's Magical Egypt DVD series. I wonder what he does in his spare time, or, for that matter, if he has any. Welcome to the show, Laird.
2: <laughs> hey, Barbara. Thank you very much for having me on tonight.
1: Oh, I'm so excited about this, because you address, you know, one of the mysteries that that plagues everyone who looks into antiquity and sees an amazing jump in in. You know, animal husbandry and metallurgy and, and um, the agriculture of the, the crop rearing aspect of life with the ancient um, cultures that, that we have around us. And I think that, that what your book, among other things, did for me was um, give me a far greater um, <clears throat> appreciation of of the, the Egyptian hieroglyphs and how, you know, every in our language, in English, every letter has, you know, a sound and you put them together and they create a word which then become has meaning when you combine the words together. But the symbols in in the hieroglyphs and, and in many other cultures, the symbols stood for, you know, paragraphs of, of spiritual philosophy and you know it isn't it isn't just one symbol one word it's it's a whole concept that these symbols give to us and and i became so fascinated with the different symbols the egyptian symbols especially that you were talking about and, and how they connected to become really a philosophy which which was amazing and you know when when we talk about archaic groups and and peoples, we often don't give them credit for having brains in their head, and you know they you know, you say archaic, and they they lived simply, and you think, well, then they had to be simple-minded, but they really weren't. They probably had a better understanding of of cosmology and spirituality than people do today.
2: Right, that's true. the The system that was being passed down from generation to generation looks to me like it was originally scientific in nature. Um, mm-hmm. It it ties out side by side with the sorts of things that Stephen Hawking or Brian Greene would say uh, in popular books they write. You can substitute, um, oftentimes you can substitute a drawing or a symbol for a diagram in a book in one of those books by one of those modern uh, astrophysicists. Now this is. Um, very compelling material, um, and I'm not sure that it originated with the ancient cultures. I think they were they were instructed in it, and their job was um, to preserve it and to pass it down. Um, uh-huh. But still, it looks like scientifically correct information.
1: I I think that um, in in my own belief system, you know, I kind of am going to a, not that I don't have a, a re, I have a religious background but I become more spiritually oriented, so that uh-huh. it's, it's kind of, it, it's, it's, you know, yeah, that, that's nice for the earth plane, but if our spirits are eternal and they, they are traveling through time, space, and all of that, then the spiritual concepts that, that will guide me once in that place go beyond the, 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 the religious, you know, the, the religion's, that that we as humans have created here on this planet to explain things. And it seems to me that, that they started out with, with these teachings from these sites, and then as time went on, man began to make up a religion to explain things instead of just holding to the spiritual concepts, which I find fascinating. And, and is it because we're human and we wanted to have gods that we could talk to and things like that. Or, you know, why, why, why was the purity of the information that was given muddied up? So as time went on,
2: uh, that's an interesting question because it does go through a progression and the, and it's a progression that we see in different parts of the world happening in similar, similar form. um, the The culture I work with that kept things probably the clearest is an uh-huh. African tribe called the the Dogon, who are from from Northwest Africa, and the way they understand uh, the these ancient symbols and ancient concepts, they they can explain them clearly um, as scientific concepts. This is not, for the most part, not represented as um, Religion, in the same way that um, later traditions do, where the where the Dogon yeah. see scientific co- concepts and stages of creation, the ancient Egyptians see deities, and you can actually catch yeah. the the Dogon in the process of uh, sort of anthropomorphizing certain concepts as a way of trying to help remember them.
0: But uh-huh. um, the
2: system goes through um, phases from where it starts out as, as as pure um, scientific concepts um and then sort of takes on symbolic aspects um i i uh, have a book with inner traditions that was is, is due out in J- uh july called primal wisdoms Pri- primal wisdom of the ancients that um uh-huh. talks about the transitions that get made here and and what techniques are being used to try to make a co- complicated concepts easy to understand these are like mnemonic yeah. devices or memory devices and so, part of that process is is that that somebody um, tried to invent a way to make a, to express a concept better, or to um, help their students remember a concept in a different way, and that's sort of responsible for some of the the changes over time.
1: Well, I know that one of the things that you know has always fascinated me and made me wonder is that you know you had these these these. And primitive isn't a word, but but simple doesn't make it either. I mean, these early these early groups of people, the hunters gatherers, and then suddenly there's an explosion of technology, and you have the Giza plateau, and you have um, Puma Punka, and you have you know all of these these amazingly advanced cultures suddenly coming from from really out of nowhere, and right. and and you know. And I've often wondered, you know, okay, so where did this all come from? Because it exploded all over the planet; it wasn't just in one place. And you know, you 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 go back to Göbekli Tepe, which is about twelve thousand years old or so, right. um, may, maybe even older, but at least that you know, end of you know, just coming at the end of the last ice age, and you you. Take everything back to there, and then you begin to um, to show how symbols um, and words uh, are are, are the same in many different cultures. And you you explain you explain it beautifully how um, Göbekli Tepe was a a place of learning, of teaching, of of, um, of wisdom. And and you know you want to go into a little bit about that how you came to that aha moment where you you saw that in the in the pillars and everything.
2: Sure. Okay. With go back to Tepe itself. My introduction to the site. Um, I was friendly with uh, John Anthony West, who passed away um, two years ago, and um, uh-huh. and some of his his um, associates, um, Robert Schock and people like that, um, and one. Um, My wife and I were invited to um, a gathering at John's house the night before. He and and Robert Schock went to Gobekli Tepe to make their first visit there. So they were trying to understand the site and put it into context. And so I had done some some research in advance of that. I wanted to be able to talk intelligently about a subject I didn't know very much about. Um, So um, I realized that the – okay, for for those who don't know, the Gobekli Tepe site – in southeast Turkey is our first um, evidence of a number of things of an ancient symbolic tradition. But it's also situated. It's the first uh, megalithic site that was constructed out of you know large multi-ton stones. Um, the site involves a series of um, pillars set in stone circles, basically inside enclosures. Uh, they've only excavated about five percent of the site, and they know from from ground-penetrating radar, that there's all sorts of other duplicate or uh, similar, very similar stone circles buried under the ground. They haven't excavated yet. But the pillars uh, were deliberately buried for thousands of years, and so carved images that are on the pillars were perfectly preserved or very well preserved. These are uh, very often images of animals of various types. Uh, sometimes they're images of um, enigmatic symbols that um, – People are often not sure what the symbols represent, but I noticed in my first research into this that the animals that were pictured on the pillars were very often the animals that were important to the Dogon cosmology, which I knew about these are, are animals that represent symbolic concepts, and I thought, okay, the fact that they're they're the same animals are on the pillar suggests that they're talking about cosmological concepts, but then there were certain animals on, pictured on the pillars that that had no connection to the tradition I was, I was studying, or at least I didn't think they did. And so I was interested to find out why are those animals pictured here if this is cosmological. Now, the problem with Go, the Gobekli Tepe site being at 10,000 B.C. is that written texts don't begin until around 3,000 B.C. So you have this uh-huh. huge span of time where there's no written text to refer to to get an idea of what people might have been talking about. And so how, how was I going to get at that? Well, I know that the further back in time we go, the more commonality of language there is. And so I thought, um, just for reference point's sake, I would look at the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary, which is from, you know, 3000 BC or after, uh, to see, if there was anything about the names of these animals that were pictured, that might give me some clue as to why they were there. And what I discovered was that the names of the animals were pronounced the same way as key concepts, you know, terms that referred to key concepts of creation, just uh-huh. as the other animals did. As a matter of fact, any any of the animals pictured on those pillars, if you looked it up in the Egyptian dictionary, you'd find a word that was a homonym, it was pronounced like, Another word that was an important concept in the cosmology, so it's as if these these pictographs were used in, in place of words as placeholders for words
0: uh-huh. um,
2: so I was pretty confident that um, from that kind of interpretation that that the original site had to do with the same symbolic tradition that I've been researching uh, wow. so um, <laughs> there are there are other techniques of language that also help us trace back what what is potentially going on. Uh, There's um, a feature of language that linguists refer to as ultra-conserved words, and that refers to the tendency of very important words to stay in a language for very, very long periods of time. And what that means is that I can go to a modern Turkish dictionary and look up a word, and have a pretty high probability that if, it, it's, if it's a cosmological word, that it reflects what the original word was like.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so, so I can make some so, imprints based on those the modern words.
1: So Gobekli Tepe was basically sort of the root source of all of these different languages to a degree.
2: Yes, to a degree it was. And not only was it the the first evidence we have of megalithic construction, but it sits right right in the same region where all of the civilizing skills first appear. You know, uh, the first evidence of cultivated grains for agriculture, and the first evidence of domesticated animals, uh, the first evidence of metalworking, metallurgy, uh, the first evidence of this proto-symbolic language concept. Um, And researchers can trace the migration of those civilizing skills outward from the gopek Tepe region. They can trace it by, uh, in parallel with DNA, and they can trace it in parallel with language. They can trace it in parallel with certain myths, and they can see that after all of these elements of society evol- seem to appear all very close to the same moment in southeast Turkey, that they started radiating outward. Some went towards Asia and China and places like that. Some went um, you know, south and, and east into India. Some went um, southward into uh, the Levant and down into ancient Egypt. Some went into Africa. Some went up into Europe. And it's all the same stuff um, all that all originated at the same point. So my job as a researcher was to try to find ways to trace that that positively connected to the, the more m- modern ancient religions, uh, the Buddhism and Hinduism and ancient Egyptian religion, um, to Kabbalism, to the, the Dogon religion, um, even e- even to some of the Scandinavian religions, even to uh, the Polynesian religions, like the religion of the, the Maori in New Zealand.
1: You have... Uh-huh. Uh,
2: common elements that all came out, all look as if they came out of the same um, originating source.
1: Well, where did, where did you get the, the, um, how did you come to the conclusion that, that Gobekli Tepe was a sanctuary of, of learning and knowledge? I mean, well, I, <laughs> I know. Th-
2: one, one reason <laughs> is that I was talking about the enigmatic symbols that appear on these pillars. Um, uh-huh. One of the way the ancient tradition, symbolic tradition conveyed meaning and confirmed meaning was by redundantly expressing the same meaning in more than one way. And so what you have on those pillars, um, the underlying mindset is that it comes out of a philosophy called Samkhya that was – uh, the basis of religions in India and in Africa, even the Egyptian religion also, I think. Um, and in the mindset of Samkhya, universes form in pairs, one less material and one more material, or one non-material, one material. And uh, so what we find in Goekhli Tepe are a half a dozen different symbols that represent that concept, the concept of the energies of two... Um, universes coming together. A sanctuary in those days was defined as a place where non-material and material energies come together. Now, one way of representing that was um, we have geometric um, shapes associated with the non-material and material. Uh, The Non-materiality is associated with a circle, and materiality is associated with a square. So any figure that reconciles the shape of a square with the shape of a circle um, is um, symbolic of this concept of the two universes coming together. It, it can be used as a symbol for a sanctuary. Um, I come back to Tepe. We have what are commonly described as handbag shapes. It looks like a square handbag with a an oval handle at the top. And you have three uh-huh. of those situated on one of the pillars. Well, in ancient times in that same region, in Iraq and places like that, Three, The shape of three hemispheres was an icon for a sanctuary. So we essentially have that at Gobekli Tepe with these handbag shapes. We have um, three dome like shapes uh, set next to each other on a pillar that define it as a sanctuary. Now, another concept that defines a sanctuary survived into, or another symbol that defines the concept of a sanctuary is uh, survived into the Masonic tradition. Um, it looks like the English letter H and we see these carved on some of those pillars and it represents the coming together of these two energies it's like the the two vertical crossbars of the H are the non-material and material energies and then the the horizontal bar that connects them is um, the two of them coming together uh, and there's oh. I even came across an, a one thousand nine hundred and eighteen article in a Masonic uh, magazine that explained explicitly that that 's what the symbol represents. Um, you have um, another concept the the nature of the relationship between the two universes is characterized as a loving embrace or a warm familial embrace, and on uh-huh. one of the pillars you have the image of two carved arms, one on either side of this pillar that, that sort of extend down the side, two sides of the pillar, and become hands whose fingers wrap around the end of the pillar in mm-hmm. in, uh, in the shape of or to represent the concept of an embrace. That mm-hmm. embrace concept There's actually an ancient Egyptian word embrace that is also a word for pillar.
1: Wow, and the, there is a symbol um, in the hieroglyphs of the two arms that, that mean to embrace, to hold, and right. I think what 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 became so meaningful to me was when you were explaining a lot of these symbols. It wasn't you weren't giving one word descriptions. It wasn't a word that it was expressing. It was a concept. And right.
2: And also, it, it,
1: it, <clears throat> go ahead.
2: Um, one of the the features of of this system is that each symbol and each word we're used to words having a single meaning. Um,
1: uh-huh.
2: In in the ancient traditions, every word carried a cluster of meanings. That's one one of the ways that we can um, correlate what the ancient Egyptians say to what the ancient India the people in India said say the Buddhists uh-huh. or the Hindus that even though they're, though they're talking in different languages we have these common clusters of meanings that float with the concepts, no matter what the language is. So uh, a good example is uh, the idea of the Dogen uh, hidden god is called Amah, and that word Amah can also mean to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. Now you go to ancient Egypt, and their hidden god was Amen. Uh, uh-huh. In many of the North African tribes, Amen and Amen are considered to be the same word. But Amen can also mean to grasp or hold firm or to establish. I actually read an article one time written by a Hebrew scholar. He was arguing that the Hebrew word Amen that falls at the end of a prayer couldn't be the same as the ancient Egyptian word Amen because, he said, it came from a root word that meant to establish. He didn't understand that established was one of the definitions of the egyptian word so he'd actually just sort of uh tripped himself up with his own um, thesis
1: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no i i found it just uh, <clears throat> fascinating as to how you you were taking the words and showing how in each of the different languages you know there there was there was so much commonality and when you, when you're when you're talking dogon egyptian tibetan Chinese, um, and, then, and then, of course, the, the Indian as well. I mean, you'd think there couldn't possibly be words that were similar, and they, they're so similar, it's unbelievable. Yeah.
2: So similar. And as I said, even when the languages are very different, um, you still have these clusters of meanings that, that carry forward from language to language that demonstrate that they had to have come from the same system originally. Um, Now, we have another advantage, a huge advantage with ancient Egyptian words, and that's because, okay, in English we're used to letters representing sounds, and that's Uh really all they are. If we spell the word week, W-E-E-K, all we can do is memorize that that refers to the concept of days of a week, the seven-day week. Now, if we go to the ancient Egyptian language, the hieroglyphic language, The word for week is written with two glyphs. It's a very simple word and a good word to start with in trying to understand how things work. It's written with a a circle with a dot in the center of it, which is the sun glyph. It can represent the concept of a day. And an upside-down U shape that is the Egyptian number 10. So I looked at that word, and I said, okay, symbolically, this says 10 days to me. And so I went and I did some research and I discovered the ancient Egyptians had a had a 10-day week. Yeah. And so I was astounded that the symbols of the word explained to me its own meaning. And I wondered mm-hmm. how often that might be true. Could there be other Egyptian words that do that? It turns out they all do that. That if you know the concept to go with the shape, the word explains its own meaning to you. All the nuances of what the, the writer was trying to say are right there in the word. Um, now, this is... Also, creates commonality with other um, cultures. If you go to the ancient Chinese hieroglyphic language and look at their word for week, it's written with two glyphs: the sun glyph, which yeah. was originally a, a circle with a dot, and their number ten, and they had a ten-day week. So we have wow. fundamental comparability between the written languages, <coughs> ancient Chinese and ancient Egyptian, at the way at the level of the way words were formulated. And that that essentially for me, turns an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary into a, an encyclopedia because if i don 't understand the meaning of a word, I can go look it up in the dictionary and look at the glyphs <laughs> that are used to write it, and the person who wrote it explains to me what they meant
1: Well, I think the thing that, that you know when I saw the ten day week and and then they they had um their their year their year they had a 365 day year 360 day year they they were real close to exactly what we've got but it was in three seasons right. was it four three uh, three seasons they had
2: three seasons they had in egypt they observed a uh, rainy season um a uh, uh let's see uh a uh, planting season and a harvesting season mhm um well, wow. the Egyptians had half a dozen different calendars, and the Dogon preserved the same calendars. And depending on the purpose, um, they worked different ways. The harvest calendar reset at the time of the harvest each year and then counted forward. They had a lunar calendar. They had a solar calendar. Uh, they had a calendar based on the star Sirius. Um, they had a calendar based on uh, the planet Venus. And the Dogon have all the same calendars, and they use them in the same ways.
1: Well, you know, I just am fascinated by by how the, the, there's a synchronicity between all of these. So if all of these different countries have the same base material to draw from, basically, how did that happen?
2: Well, in my field of study interpretations have to begin with what the cultures themselves are telling us because
1: uh-huh.
2: the, the human brain of the researcher is, is wired to look for patterns. I mean, anybody's brain is wired to look for patterns. And so it's too easy to, to think you see a pattern someplace that's not a real pattern. And so uh-huh. the only way to protect against that is to have the, the starting point for any interpretation begin with what one of the fl- cultures flatly says they thought was true. So if we go to the Dogon and to the Buddhists, they each flatly claim that in ancient times they were given instruction by somebody who knew more than they did in civilizing skills and in agriculture in particular, all of that tagged to the symbolic uh, creation tradition. And the creation okay. tradition was talking about three three themes. The first theme was how does the universe form. The second was how does matter form. And the third one was how do processes of biological reproduction happen. And in the Dogen mindset, the way they look at these things, those three themes are parallel themes. They're parallel to each other. And to illustrate that, the Dogen simultaneously describe all three of those themes complicated themes, using a single progression of symbols that apply to all three themes. And that's partly why the symbols are so hard to understand is because, um, for example, the, the shape of the hemisphere, if we're talking about biological reproduction, um, refers to the expanding womb of a mother. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the formation of matter, it refers to the expansion of mass before particles form. And it's true with each one of these symbols. You can't ask, what does the symbol mean? You have to ask, what does it mean if we're talking about biological reproduction? And what does it mean if we're talking about the formation of the universe? Uh And the meanings are parallel, but they aren't precisely the same. It's like an expanded womb of a mother. is not exactly the same thing as expansion of mass, but it's the same concept in the same position.
1: Well, I think what fascinated me I mean, the whole book fascinated me, but one of the things that, that, that kept smacking me in the face was that I, I've understood the Egyptian religion and stuff like that, and, sort of, and, and some of the other cultures as well, <clears throat> but they all seem to have to do with their gods and goddesses and everything like that. And my question has always been, what came first? And right. you're explaining what came first and <laughs> right. and then the then the question is so where did it come from
2: right well and, again we, we go to the the cultures who have the clearest memory of that and, uh-huh. and the, for me it's the the buddhist and the dogen have um, symbolic systems that are very parallel to each other they've but given in completely different languages which means it's not that one adopted it wholesale from the other it's that they both from ancient times we able to preserve the complicated details of this tradition all the way down to the modern day so that a modern authority on the dogon religion understands things in very much the same way that a modern authority on buddhism understands
1: the other thing that you 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 brought out that i found was fascinating is that that with many of these different countries cultures that that especially with the dogon um, the wisdom was there for those who seek it. And, and so the more you learn and embrace the more secrets and symbols that you're given so that, so that, you know, the, the guys that are plowing the fields um, understand to a level because that's all they need. But those who want to know more are given that material as, as they become ready for it. Initiates, if you will. So that, so that, there's a There's a progress of un, of gaining wisdom by those who are seeking it as opposed to cramming it down somebody's throat be, and you know because it's, it's nothing they'll ever use or need so right. that, and so
2: that it, uh, the way the Dogen rules work, any person can potentially learn the inner secrets of their tradition, any Dogen tribes person or even anyone outside of the tribe, if they sincerely pursue it, yeah. but it's the job of the student to keep asking the next question and to continue to to work with whoever their informant is to say okay but but why is such and such true and what happened before such and such and you know to drive the next um the next stage of the instruction and as long as uh-huh. a student continues to do that they continue to learn now that dynamic between student and informant is symbolic of something it's symbolic of a relationship that Samkhya says, this is the the philosophy of cosmology from ancient times, it's a a companion to yoga. Um, It's actually yoga and Samkhya have uh, very many of their concepts in common. I have a daughter who studies yoga, and she'll um, come to me to talk about something she learned from the yoga side of things, and I can finish her sentences for her because she's using all the same terminology and all the same concepts that are, are used for the cosmology. But um, in Samkhya, the non-material universe has perfect knowledge but an inability to act, whereas the material universe has imperfect knowledge with full ability to act.
0: Uh And
2: Samkhya says that there are routine attempts made to communicate knowledge from the non-material side to the material side. And if we're paying attention to them, um, then we start fostering those to ourselves. Those uh, attempts take the form of vivid dreams, um, clairvoyance, um, everyday synchronicities, you know, things that look like they, they happen by chance or, uh, or circumstance um, actually have meaning. Learning yeah. to distinguish between the ones that do and don't have meaning is part of the, the trick. Yep. Uh, um and that the more you pay attention to those and credit that there might be something happening, the more you foster them to yourself. I compare it to a, a party, um, say a party in New York City where there's um, one person from an Eastern European country who who's um, at the party but can't speak English yet. And midway through the party, they discover there's somebody over in the corner who speaks a little bit of Ukrainian. And so the chances are that person's going to spend the whole rest of their night with the person who speaks a little Ukrainian trying to communicate. Well, that's sort of the way it works with the non-material is that when the non-material um, consciousness notices that there's somebody paying attention, they take advantage of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, I preach this all the time in different words, but, you know, it's the same concept. Um and a lot of this too is i don't know if you've ever looked into the um the uh the emerald tablet material the toss material
2: a little bit not
1: deeply i mean that that goes into the same concept the same um and and also the the fact that that in spirit you you have you know you have complete wisdom, but when you become physical, you have action, and so it's the combination of the two that creates you know the totality of of what we're meant to be right so um it it just there it it was fascinating because you I like the term cosmology better than religion because it it takes in everything as opposed to restricts it to a a single single religion or concept or philosophy this is this is an overriding all <clears throat> for one of a better word
2: right now the dodgen say that their their teachers had two purposes in teaching us stuff to us Their two main goals that they were trying to accomplish one is to try to help us to understand our true relationship to the larger processes of creation. Because I think the belief was that, that if we knew what our true relationship was to, to the larger, the big picture, that we would choose to behave differently. Probably. And the second thing was to try to foster in humanity discriminating knowledge, a facility for discriminating knowledge. And discriminating knowledge is basically the ability to draw an inference from a set of facts. Um, and I've learned through my studies that the facts are important. I mean, the facts point you to in the right direction towards things. But fa- the, a list of facts is far less powerful than an inference that you can eventually draw because based on those facts, that... Because the facts are the way they are, it means that certain things have to be true and certain other things have to not be true.
1: Right. <clears throat> well, I think what, what fascinated me was um, if Gobekli if, Tepli um, is a spiritual center, are there others on the earth plane or is that the only one?
2: Well, in trying to sort out uh, part of the problem back in that era is that there is uh, a lot sparser a set of evidence to work from than you have once you get down to ancient Egyptian times. You know, in ancient Egypt,
1: yeah.
2: you can hardly take a step without tripping over a pot or a, an artwork or <laughs> a glyph or a yeah. temple or whatever. But in the Gobekli Tepe era, there's a very slim set of evidence to work from. You have um, some carved images on pillars. Um, (laughs) You have some cultural practices that you can can sort of, the archaeologists can infer that certain things were going on. But it's a very slim set of evidence. So in trying to find ways to sort out what was going on, I had to be a little bit creative. Uh, One of the things I decided to look at was, I mean, I knew that ancient Egyptian words explained things to me. So I asked myself, what was the ancient Egyptian name for the Gobekli Tepe region? It's in a, in a region called Cappadocia. The, the, the Greek name is Cappadocia. So I looked that okay. up in the Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary and discovered it was Get-Pet-Kai. And I knew over the course of you know thousands of years, Get-Pet-Kai is a pretty good approximation of Gobekli.
1: Yeah.
2: Now the problem was that the Egyptian word was An archaic word form, and what didn't was written according to a different set of rules than the average Egyptian word is written by. So, um, not only were the are the glyphs um, written in a different way, they also carry different pronunciations than than they would if you modernized it. So, um, I decided check and see what the word would say if you modernize the pronunciation of the glyphs. And I discovered it read het, pet, ka, ya. Now I know that the word het is a term for a sanctuary or a temple. And pet is a name for an Egyptian god, Ptah. He's a god of space. Uh-huh. Uh, ka is an Egyptian word for uh, traditionally interpreted as a concept of, of um, the spirit or the soul, I think, and uh, but it's represented by two uh, two hands set in sort of a U shape. It, it's the concept of the embrace for me, but yeah. it's a name of also a name of an Egyptian god. And Yah is the Hebrew god of light. So when I interpret that word in terms of the modern pronunciation, it says temple of temple where space embraces light. Okay. Which, okay, now that's the, the definition of a sanctuary. It's where non-material energy comes together with material energy.
0: Well, so
1: it, it kind of so, sounds like Gobekli Tepe was the only place that this happened.
2: Well, to begin and, with, okay, the, fir- the first glyph of the word is the sh- in the shape of a little shrine. And the last uh-huh. glyph of the word is in the shape of mountains. And so, to that extent, the archaic word form is telling me that it's the name of a mountaintop sanctuary or a mountaintop shrine. Turns out, there's a second word that's written in that same format that looks like it's a, the name of a second shrine of of similar age and similar type. Tells me that there must be another location somewhere that we don't know about yet. There was a second site I just recently uncovered. Um, near Gobekli Tepe In a place called uh, Mardin um, Where the standing pillars Are more like uh, They look in, in later eras in, um, It's around 3000 BC In northern Scotland um, But the name of that site will, uh, is In the archaic form Was pronounced Ga-nu-sa-ast uh, When I modernize it It said Tet-penu-sa-ast Okay, now the first The first word was formulated in terms of the names of three deities, Pet, Ka, and Uh Yah. The second name, Het Penu Sa asked, I know Sa is the name of a deity, a god of knowledge, and asked his name for Isis. I didn't know what Penu was. So I did some research and I discovered that Penu was a name for a shroom mouse god in ancient Egypt. It was um, (laughs) celebrated at a couple of key sites in ancient Egypt. But it was also a term that in India became a generic term for deity.
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, again, I we, do, now I, have, you, we have the second name that's formulated the same way. It's it's formulated in terms of the names of three deities. In the second name, it's actually formulated in terms of the name of three astronomical bodies. Ast is um, a term for Sirius. Sa is a term for Orion. And Penu um, it took some research for me to, to demonstrate that I was right about it, is a term for a very faint, spiraling birthplace of stars that centers on the Orion Belt stars called Barnard's Loop. And in Buddhism, huh. those those three astronomical bodies have significance when we're talking about concepts of, of ascension as it relates to um, the universe. Yeah, and... Um
1: I was fascinated how, first of all, Ganesh is, you know, I mean, who wouldn't like a man with a strange head? Um, <laughs> <yeah. clears
0: throat>
1: and the fact that he rode on a shrew mouse made it even all the more fun. Um, right. When, when you went through the different incarnations of Ganesh, you, you went through the process of ascension, spiritually speaking.
2: Right. Uh, there, There is a, a famous text um, that was written about, there's a, um, a Yale professor, Phyllis Granoff, um, who's still, I think uh, she's still a professor emeritus at Yale. Um, she wrote a, uh, an article, co- article called Ganesha as Metaphor. And this text in uh, ancient India has never been translated, to my knowledge, into English. It's just in Sanskrit. But she could see going through this text, they were talking about eight incarnations of Ganesha. Um, uh-huh. And she could see that those eight incarnations were supposed to represent sequential stages of creation. And so one of the chapters of my book, Point of Origin, I um, use various methods to um, relate those incarnations of Ganesha to concepts of creation in the Dogon system. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, a key structure of matter in the Dogon system, a, a, a spiral that is said to exist at every point in space and time, um, mm-hmm. has direct association with Ganesha. I actually recently wrote an entire book about Ganesha um, that explains how uh, Ganesha's symbolism is to the uh, dynamics of energy that create this spiral.
1: Yeah, and for those who aren't familiar with Ganesh, Ganesh was a human, had a human body but <clears throat> lost his head and so he replaced it with the head of an elephant and right. um a, and for those of you who aren't familiar with you know Dumbo and the like elephants don't seem to like mice so the fact that he rides on a shrew mouse is hysterical
2: it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, very comical
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean you know <laughs> but but um Ganesh is somebody that everybody should know about because I, I, just, I just think he's so fascinating. And in, in, in a lot of pictures you see him as dancing, which to me indicates that, um, you know, the ascension process, the, the growing process, you know, yes, his, his stages have to do with creation, but they also have to do with the evolution of the human spirit.
2: Right. And there are, as I said, the the correlates to yoga demonstrate that all these same concepts apply to um, human energy and human consciousness and human, uh, you know, development, uh, psychological development.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so that, you know, for for anybody on a spiritual journey, this is a great book to read because it does give you – deeper understanding of a lot of things that that, that um, have gone on that, that we really, you know, haven't been able to connect the dots to, and, and Laird, you, you connect the dots beautifully. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> even, even throw a few more dots in there, which is, which is really kind of fun. I, I found that, that again, I, I have to go back to the hieroglyphics, and, and the element of the eagles or vultures, or ravens, or whatever, because they're very prominent all over the place there.
2: They are, absolutely. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, their memory is that the first time knowledge was passed to humanity, it happened at a remote location called that they call Vulture Peak. Uh-huh. So the, the fact that vulture images are so prominent uh, at Gobekli Tepe is one of the arguments for saying that this is where their mythical teaching happened. Yeah. Um,
1: well, do you know something that has something to do also with a a Freemason um, ritual that takes place someplace here in the United States? And it's the mountain is named after the bird, which is you know. I think it's Owl Mountain, though. I'm 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 getting off track here, but but you know the the symbols, especially in the hieroglyphs, the, and and they're on many of the pillars at Gobekli Tepe. They, you know, there's 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 something about the significance to them that is very very profound.
2: Right, and these symbols are. A lot of careful thought went into the development of these symbols. Um, someone took a lot of time to think about um, what the best way was to, resent, to represent and convey certain ideas.
1: Um, uh-huh.
2: And in, in original form, they were one of the original ways they went about it was trying to relate the concepts to the key attributes of, a, of an animal. For instance, the way that energy moves is very similar to the way a snake slithers. And so the sna- yep. a snake or a serpent became a great metaphor for energy. Um, uh-huh. The way uh, a rabbit or a hare twitches makes a great metaphor for the concept of vibration. So yeah. each of these symbols was was carefully considered in terms of um, putting the student in the mindset of asking themselves now. What is it about that's unique about this animal that gives me a clue what concept it represent?
1: Well, uh, well, okay, so the hieroglyphs, you know, when they're lined up and everything, tell a story, you know, and, and with great depth and perception. But the figures on the pillars that go Tepe, they don't seem to be in any particular order.
2: It depends on which researchers you talk to. There are researchers okay. who feel that that the animal figures on the pillars are, have zodiac meaning, which is possible because concepts of even though there was not a, an official formulated zodiac before you know late centuries B.C., um, all of the elements exist in Dogon culture; they just haven't been put together yet. So the fact that animals might be representing constellations is not beyond the realm of possibility. It actually seems pretty likely. There are other researchers who say someone was trying to pro- portray astronomical events in a certain era on on these pillars. Um, one researcher who feels there was a, a, comet, represented, a, comet, a comet strike represented on the pillars. Um, there are are researchers who feel that certain of the pillars are aligned to certain constellations or stars in a certain era. There are a lot of different theories around The problem is we don't have written texts to be able to pin a lot of that down. So we have to – it gets into dangerous territory when we see a resemblance that we think is correct and we overlay that on an ancient site. We're on shakier ground than if we have a text that says somebody in ancient times said this was true.
1: Yeah. No, I can see that. So, if I know they've 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 excavated I think two sites. Um and and there are I don't know what 5% or whatever there there's a huge amount of of excavation yet to to go through. Um and some of the pillars are not as well carved as others, right? Is is there any is there any explanation as to or or do you have a philosophy or thought um, why there are so many of these circles that are buried, and um, why is the quality of the carving so so divergent, so different?
2: Well, the Dogon perspective is. That in ancient times, and actually, this is also the Buddhist perspective, that in ancient times, whoever was instructing these concepts went about it by selecting a handful of people from a tribal group, removing them to a remote location like Gobekli Tepe or um, other sites that I've written about and instructed those, that group of people in the civilizing skills and then sent them back to teach everybody else. This is a dynamic uh-huh. we see repeated in myth of cultures all over the world about the eight uh, quasi-mythical ancestors or quasi-mythical emperors you know, who are credited with bringing civilizing skills. Now, if that's true then it could very well make sense that we have multiple stone circles. Imagine that someone at Quebec Tepe was being instructed in stone masonry.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, as their final project, let's imagine their final project <laughs> was to build and erect one of these stone circles. Okay. Okay. We could very easily have ended up with what looked like multiple incarnations of the same stone circle to varying degrees of of capability i mean I, I compare it to um <laughs> woodshop class in in <laughs> a, in middle school where okay. um, you know the the teacher of the class presents you before you start with the perfectly constructed wooden bookshelf the way it should look flawless and then the students <laughs> each make their bookshelf and those are all those hit the whole entire range from fairly perfect to fairly imperfect um, I think that's well, what you are seeing seeing in these stone circles and that's also an explanation for why students who are educated in those those um concepts who were originally from Peru might have expressed things exactly the same way that students who were educated from China express them.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Then,
2: now <clears throat> in a lot of cultures they will they'll um build Temple sites on top of the site of an ancient temple, but that's not what was yeah. happening at Göbekli Tepe. These stone circles were roughly contemporaneous with each other. There was no re- one was not decommissioned to build the next one. But um, somebody did deliberately take the time to cover over. Um, looks like they covered over the previous one and then built the next one, sort of as if each class started from scratch. We don't want you to copy off the other class's paper here. <laughs> You go ahead and (laughs) and build your own stone circle.
1: Okay, so what was the purpose of of burying them then? At some point in time, school was over, I guess. At
2: Gobekli Tepe, I didn't have a clear sense of why that happened. Um, Robert Schock feels that they were covered over because they knew that there were were, um, solar events that were going to happen that were very destructive and that they wanted to protect the site. Uh, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make complete sense to me because if you think about these people living in this very ancient time, that the one thing they had in life that was likely to survive a calamity was these giant stone temples. That if you knew, if you had foreknowledge somehow that there was going to be a cataclysm, wouldn't you spend your time trying to safeguard your family and your friends and figure out how you're going to live through it rather than spending your time burying the one thing that's likely to survive anyway.
1: Unless, of course, the purpose of them was to teach wisdom, and once you had the wisdom, you didn't need the temple.
2: Right. Now, when you get on to later sites, there's a, a, a much later site at, uh, on Orkney Island in, at around 3200 3, B.C. that was also uh-huh. deliberately, deliberately covered over. Um, the Egyptian word, one of the Egyptian words to cover over is pronounced ark. Now, the shape of the stone circle at Gobekli Tepe is very close to a Dogon drawing called the Ark of Ogo, where Ogo is a character who represents the concept of light. Uh The symbols used to write that word ark Uh, spell out they sort of in pictures a daily ritual that happens in Judaism. In Judaism, um, all over the world, temples in Judaism are they they read through the entire Torah scroll over the course of a year. They have have it parcelled out in sections, and every temple in the world is reading the same portion on the same day. And they they read the portion and then scroll it ahead a little bit and read the next portion the next day. But in between. After they're finished reading today's portion, they cover over the the scroll with um, a cloth cover and set it inside a cabinet called an Aron HaKodesh, which is abbreviated to the word Ark. So there's a perspective from which burying the site, deliberately covering it over, does a couple of things. First of all, it names what it is. It tells us anybody with knowledge of ancient these ancient languages is going to understand that ark covering it over names that this was an ark. Second of all, that um, the act of burying it demonstrates that whatever the instructional intention was at that site it was brought to its proper completion because when it's brought to its proper completion what, what do we do? We cover the thing over and we put it away. Uh-huh. And so we know for certain that that instructional process wasn't interrupted midway through. We didn't end up with a temple half buried. We didn't end up with a stone circle unburied.
1: Uh-huh.
2: We know that whatever instructional process was intended, they completed properly. Also, the science that's represented by these symbols was clearly targeted to a scientifically minded audience. Now, from Uh the perspective of of 10,000 B.C., that would be a future audience, somebody like us. Deliberately covering over the site preserves the site for that same audience. It it preserves it in a way that somebody in 19, the nineteen nineties can come along and bump into one of the stones and dig it up, and now we have some insight into what was going on at ten thousand BC.
1: Okay, but it was it was a place of learning, a place of wisdom, a place of um, teaching, and and it helped to bring humanity as a whole into a a new level of existence. Right. And at at some point school was closed. Yes, at some
2: point it was. And at that point all the the go ahead.
1: No, and at some point the teacher said, okay, we've shared what we need to share. We're going to leave. And not let them make gods of us and, you know, let them evolve on their own to whatever is appropriate for them.
2: Right. And the Dogen actually had the presence of mind to ask their teachers, are you God? And their uh teacher said, no, we're not God. But if it helps you to think of us as agents of God, then that's okay. You can think of us that way. But they weren't claiming to be God or to be agents of God. They were only claiming to be benign instructors.
1: Teachers, yeah. And, I mean, did, did the teachers, I mean, I know the answer. I read the book. But did the teachers tell them where they came from?
2: There is a perspective about where they came from, but it's a complicated one to support. But there is scientific basis for what they're saying if you look at things the right way. The now to get at this, the I said we have two symbolic traditions that are parallel to each other, one from the Dogon in Africa and one from Buddhism in India, given in right. different languages. Now they both have documented reasons, credentials for saying they're ancient. These are ancient traditions. Uh Buddhism was documented by about 400 BC and the Dogon system is expressed using Ancient Egyptian words that went out of use around 750 B.C. Dogen culture reflects ancient Egyptian culture at about 3000 B.C. So both of these traditions look as if they each independently managed to keep all of this complex information straight for thousands of years. It's to the point that the modern researchers are in agreement about it. So nothing, nothing changed in either system. Nothing really substantial. Now you get down uh-huh. to the bottom of that, and the Dogon, uh, the Buddhists say, by the way, our most sacred symbols we got from a non-human source. And the Dogon say, yeah, oh, Dogen by the say, way, yeah, <laughs> the Dogon say, not only was it non-human, it was also originally non-material, but taking action materially. So it's not as if we're talking about a shaman envisioning things. We're not talking about vivid dreams here or a drug induced haze. We're talking uh-huh. about actual physical teachers teaching things. The same way that in um when we talk about Moses on the mountain, he has actual physical interaction with a burning bush. This is not a vision he's had. He's saying this happened physically. And yeah. the Israelites are cautioned to stay a distance away from the mountain because of the bad effects that might accrue to them if they kept too close. There's actual physical <laughs> stuff happening. Yeah. So
1: I find, my you know, job I find as a
2: researcher then, that, that, that fact that they're in agreement that it came from a non-human source and the Dogon say it was non-material puts me in a hard position as a researcher because I can... I can say, I can take the stance that, okay, yes, they managed to keep all the intimate details of their symbols right, but when they got down to this last point, they both somehow misremembered in matching ways who they got it from. I don't believe that. Instead, what I believe is that because they both say it, I have to entertain the idea that they got it from a non-human source and try to demonstrate, is there a perspective from which that makes sense? As it turns out, there is. But it takes an entire book to explain it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which you're now writing. Um, no,
2: it's out. It's a, a book called Seeking the Primordial. Oh. It's a book I published a couple of years ago.
1: But the same thing happened at the Orkney Islands. There were teachers there. Right. That, now, that if, they... if you
2: think that the Egyptians refer to the Gobekli Tepe era, in my view, they refer to it as the first time. Now, yes. the fact that they call it the first time, and the Buddhists say the first time knowledge was passed to humanity from a Buddha, you don't refer to a thing as the first time unless there was more than one time, otherwise yeah. it's just the time. Mhm, So I see an era of instruction I go back to Tepe at ten thousand b c and a second era of instruction around thirty two hundred b c on Orkney
1: Ah, okay,
2: now I the, how you were going to. You know. The era on Orkney happens within a hundred years or so of the appearance of agriculturally based kingships all around the planet. One that appeared in Egypt called Taru, another one in China called Iru, another one in Ireland called Aru, and another one in South America called Peru. Now, those words have meaning. Uh, On one level Uh of understanding, they represent the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west. On another level of understanding, they represent four stages of an agricultural field, from um, an unplanted field to a planted field to a a field with crops growing in it to um, harvested crops in a granary. Okay. So it looks to me as if... Okay, and they're all also all associated with lions or lion-like animals. So it looks to me as if, immediately following that era of instruction on Orkney, someone set up agriculturally-based kingships in those places that survived. Hmm. It and looks as if there had been an attempt to do that in Egypt at around 10,000 B.C. that didn't make it.
1: Okay, so these teachers, and, and you know, I am of the persuasion that, that you know, I, I believe in interdimensional travel more than I believe in spaceships, so, Me too. Um, <laughs> and, and that's only, you know, until I see a spaceship, and, and then maybe I'll change my mind, but... I mean I've seen the UFO but God knows who made it. So um but the interdimensional aspect of it makes more sense to me.
2: Right, and especially and, since the way UFOs behave has dimensional aspects to it that don't make sense if you don't say they're dimensional.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But at least in the Orkney Islands when the teachers were described they, they they were human-ish, but not really. And, and um, you know, you have no description here at, at Gobekli Tepe, but, but for them to have been not human um, and be able to convince people to come and study, um, especially in, in those times in which um, things that were different were frightening for most people, is is really um, they had to be they had to be pretty human looking in order for for people to even go anywhere near them, but um, right
2: the the earliest Scandinavian sagas the Vikings who first arrived on Orkney Island reported finding two groups living there side by side. The first group were a group of pygmies of very strange habits uh-huh. that were. Uh, by some reports were um, compared to wizards. The second was a group of clerics who always wore white like the Dogon do and who were described as being so different from the Scandinavians as to constitute a different race. It looks ah. to me as if the Dogon were the ones who did the best job of preserving the original round of instruction at Gobekli Tepe. And when the second round uh-huh. of instruction was established, that the Dogon priests were enlisted essentially as um, assistant teachers to be the ones who actually gave the instruction to the new initiates rather than exposing them to the kinds of possible uh, hazards that were talked about for the Israelites with Moses. Uh-huh. And then, as the classes graduated, that black Africans went with them, became the top priests early on, and possibly even lead the chieftains early on, until things got rolling.
1: And what better way to teach than to take the most advanced or curious um, people of the population and, and to put them through um, a, a series of, of teaching experiences. I mean, to, to, to give this kind of knowledge had to take a, a period of time. Yes, uh, well,
2: we know that the Greek um, philosophers report that people like uh, Plato spent time in ancient Egypt with the, the um, priests, and uh-huh. that The reports always boil down to that so-and-so was there for 20 years. This is a 20-year process. Well, the uh, French anthropologist who studied the Dogon and wrote the definitive anthropological study about the Dogon were there off and on for 30 years. And uh, the lead anthropologist was actually initiated, granted Dogon citizenship, and when he died was was given a Dogon burial. Um, wow. I know my process, sort of being a self-educated process, has taken more than 20 years. This is a body of knowledge that takes a period of time to be able to get your arms around.
1: Well, yeah, I I, I can't imagine where one would begin, but, but, you know, you certainly began with your languages, and, and, and it's fascinating. Um, I just, you know, I, I look at all of this and I think, Okay, I mean we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, so you know twenty or thirty is just a you know a drop in the bucket i guess
2: right at thirty two hundred b c twenty years was the average lifespan of a person, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> many yeah. adults would live beyond about twenty five
1: and you and you begin to wonder, were they all given you know the animal husbandry and the Ag- agriculture, and you know, were they given all of it, or were certain people given certain aspects of it, so that when they went back and shared the information with their villages, um, you know, they were able to, they had specialties, I guess is the best way to put it.
2: Right, it looks like uh, the specialties is the way they went about it. I mean, the Maori in New Zealand, um, their traditions are, it's understood that they had village schools that were teaching all the same concepts that. I say we're being taught on Orkney Island, and the way they implemented it is they had um, candidates who were specialists in in the religious side of things, and other candidates who were specialists in the um, occult side of things, and other experts in all sorts of different fields. And so, I don't think any one person was trying to master all of it.
1: Well, I would I would think that that while you know you have the the agriculture and the animal husbandry and the metallurgy and and all of that, but at the same time there is a philosophy that goes along with these talents that that you know gives you the understanding of the purpose of them. So they had to be given a, a consciousness
2: so,
0: stuff Right, they had too. to have
2: a a, ba- a base. Understanding of what how the system worked, and then could specialize in everything. So I know the tribes specialized because we have naming uh, conventions for the tribes that were trained in this. Um, there's the way that the generic naming convention works is it combines a word that means to celebrate, which for the Egyptians was sakai, s k h a i, is how it transliterates, combined with a, a syllable. That is a cosmological concept. So you have uh, in in for the Dogon that word Sakai becomes Sigi, which is the name of their celebration of Sirius. It's uh, uh-huh. there's a group called the Naqi or Naxi si in from the Tibetan Chinese um, borderland. Uh, their name says celebrates Na. Na is that term for the non-material feminine. On Orkney, you have the Scarabre village, which is where the looks like it was dorm housing for the students overlooking the Bay of Scale, Sakai El, that says celebrates El. El is a god of space who mm-hmm. is a counterpart to the god of, god of light in Palestine. And, um,
1: Definitely.
2: For Egypt, the name was Mirra, loves Ra. In Judaism, it was um, Yahudah, which means praises Yah. Uh, have examples from from all over the world of these tribes that their name tells you what their specialty was. It looks as if the the each instructional class was um, had a a major subject, the same way a student in a college would have a major.
1: Wow. And and you know you do begin to appreciate so much more. What happened to all of these gifts and talents that were given 10, 12,000 years ago, when then sud- suddenly, you know, uh, there was a burst of, of production, not only with, with growing grains and, and metallurgy and, and all of the other stuff. But what's fascinating to me is, is the fact that with all this training, they got the cos- cosmology. And at some point in time, everybody decided to create gods. And well, I can I can and, tell
2: you how that how that comes about. Um, we see it again. We we'll go back to Ganesha, and we witness the process by which that comes about. Um, the for the Dogen, when they describe the basic structure of matter, it can be looked at in in, two, in a couple of different ways. One way is conceptually it's um seven stages of creation that produce a spiral and that spiral of matter is like a little tiny vortex at every point in space and time but another way to look at it is as seven rays of a star that of increasing length that are emitted from a central point and so when the D- dogon work with that figure that's called the po pilu and pilu is a a word that in various languages means elephant, tusk, uh, white, sun, all I- icons of Ganesha. Now, uh-huh. when the Dogon are working with that figure with the seven rays coming out of a central point, they, one, another way they look at it is they anthropomorphize those rays. They take the top two rays and imagine it as a head, and the next two rays, imagining them as arms, and the next two rays down, we're imagining them as legs. And the last one, imagining it as a single tusk. That's one of the, the classic configurations of Ganesha, the poses of Ganesha. Now, yeah. the second way they configure the, those rays is the same two ray, top rays as a head, the next four rays coming out from the sides as four arms, and the seventh ray as being the leg that the figure dances on. That's a, se- a second classic configuration of Ganesha. So we have absolutely positive connections here in about a do- you know, half a dozen different ways that demonstrate the Dogen taking what's originally a scientific figure that's meant to express ultimately um, dynamics of energy sci- that are scientific and as a way of being able to remember it and teach it to somebody, they make it into a, into stick figures that become Ganesha. okay so so um this is this is all all comes out of metaphors that are designed to make things easier, but after a period of time, the students remember the metaphor, but don't remember the original thing the metaphor yes. was based on <laughs>
1: yeah and and you know when you look in the different um definitions of the gods and the goddesses and things like that uh, you you see that the the base meaning is there but but not the. Conceptual purpose of it, right? So that so that um, they lost the cosmology,
2: right? And each culture did you know, preserve certain elements of this tradition, but not uh-huh. others. But once once you understand that they're all talking about the same original system, now you can cross compare what the Kabbalists say, to what the the Hindus say, to what the Dogans say, and so forth, and start to triangulate in on what the original system had to look like to produce those results. This is the same way that linguists went about recreating standardized versions of all of Shakespeare's uh, plays, because they had... (laughs) Variant copies, because every publisher was out there with a the guy scribbling down, furiously scribbling down lines as they heard the play performed, and they went were on you know were on the street with a published version, but got certain words wrong and certain lines wrong, and the scholars then had to reconcile all that and say, okay, here's what the it's likely the original play looked like. I've done that with um, the Ganesha myth in a book I published about Ganesha, Ganesha, and it comes down to root root concepts of energy that the Dogon talk about and one of the really excellent things about this entire system is that in the end the words flatly tell you what they're talking about if you if you have enough of an overview that you don't have to guess what anybody's talking about in one form or another the words they're giving you are flatly telling you what they mean
1: yeah i was fascinated with with you know string theory and all i mean they got into all sorts of really deep scientific science. Stuff.
2: Right. And, it really comes and, down, you know. The astronomers can't figure out why the universe seems to be expanding at an increasing rate, and they postulated dark energy as a, a thing to give it a push to increase its, its rate of expansion. But the the Dugan system is, in the end, a lot simpler than that. It provides a rationale that that where that evaporates, that it's it right explained away, and all the. Um, the weirdness of quantum, the quantum world just evaporates when you look at things the way the Dogen are talking about them.
1: And, you know, you stop and think, if schools would explain things like this to children, our society would be very, very different.
2: (laughs) It would. Dogen, Dogen and Egyptian society have had great stability, um, the Egyptian culture was stable for its entire, entire length, for almost 3,000 years. And if you yeah. imagine the Dogen culture is built on the same pattern, they've been stable for another 3,000 years almost, or 2,000 easily.
1: It's, it, you know I, I guess it comes down to, you know, like you said, we remember the symbols, but we don't remember the purpose or, or the message that the symbol is giving. And um, it's such a shame because the, the wisdom that has been forgotten, misplaced, lost, however you want to put it, um, what, what's really interesting is, you know, with Gobekli Tepe being dug up, you know, maybe it's a time to start remembering all of the philosophies that, that we have lost touch with.
2: Right, and more and more of it is coming out all the time. You know, they're making new finds, and uh, people are putting little pieces together. You know, missing jigsaw puzzle pieces left and right. There are an awful lot of researchers out there looking at things from a non-traditional point of view, and they're making their own headway here uh, towards things that that make a lot of sense to me—a lot more sense than what um, oftentimes the, the traditional academic viewpoint um, makes things sound like.
1: Now, in, in many traditions, um, when, when they talk of those who gave them the wisdom or the knowledge or the, or, or the gifts, um, when they left, they all said they would be back. And, and I wonder if that, that is the case, if from time to time they have come back, you know, possibly some Tibetan monks or... You know, in places where, you know, we don't have a lot of the, the techie stuff that, that people rely so much on, but in places where there is peace, quiet, and tranquility to a certain extent, where, where these philosophies can be expanded upon. I mean, it, it just seems to me that, that, you know, they have promised to come back. And, you know, especially biblically speaking, um, you know, Jesus was going to come back and everybody's waiting for him to return, I would be more eager to wait for the return of the teachers.
2: <laughs> yes, that even even in um, the Christian tradition, I mean, from my point of view, my focus is mostly at 3000 B.C. 3000 B.C. Mm-hmm. is further removed from the Christian era than we are from the Christian era by a thousand years. Yeah. So, so. Very often the Christian references are just too late for me. They they don't preserve enough of the detail of the original system for me to trace anything. But still, I can see circumstances where somebody clearly knew aspects of this original tradition because they're using certain symbols in the right way.
1: Mm. You must be so much fun in a museum. Um, <laughs> Or get lost. Probably an archaeological dig would be a better place. <laughs> um, have you? I mean, are you able to do this with almost all symbols that have been found? For instance, um, in the um, uh, the the oh gosh, the temple in where is it? That Dr. Sam um has um, the pyramids in crap. I can't remember where, but but there are symbols. There are symbols, you know, that that are ancient that have been found all over the place, and um, you know, you, you kind of wonder. Oh, Bosnia. Thank you, Mark. In the Bosnian pyramid, there there were symbols that were carved on. Some of the stones there, and I'm wondering if any of those symbols would be ones that you would recognize. Have you seen any of? Have you have you seen those symbols?
2: Um, I haven't worked with the Bosnian symbols yet, um, and it, I sort of get. Um, I have my own idea of where I'm going to go next. You know, with the next book I plan to work on, but more often than not, it, it gets bumped. As a matter of fact, this book <laughs> point of origin. The way this book came about was, um, I thought. Um That I was researching half a dozen different questions about language for for friends and colleagues that I know uh this is one uh-huh. summer day, and so i I was actively working on these these six different um, research questions and so this one morning in July, all six of the questions resolved within about an hour of each other in terms of six words from the same column of the same page of the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary. Wow. Now, the seventh word on that page was the Egyptian word for pillar that also means embrace.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
2: And when I saw that, suddenly for the first time, I understood what those arms on the Gobekli Tepe pillar had to represent. Now, the, the, the misdirection, the thing that was throwing me off about it is whoever carved those arms didn't have an artistic sense of how to convey the idea of a warm motherly embrace. The Uh, arms themselves are very cold and very clinical and very not. There's no emotion conveyed from them at all. And so one of the things that fascinates me about um, the really ancient things is times like that when somebody is shown – to be less than perfectly capable or perfectly knowledgeable about the thing that they're trying to do, especially Uh when it comes to trying to convey something intuitively or emotionally to a human, someone didn't know what they were doing with those arms and hands. And so for years, I didn't understand that they were trying to communicate the concept of an embrace. And that concept of an embrace is hugely important. You go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary, and term after term after term that relates to the uh, creation tradition also means embrace in one form or another. So uh, because of that discovery of that being essentially pointed to that seventh word in that column on that page, an entire book of 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 um, ideas opened up to writing. It only took me about um, uh, three months to write the Point of Origin book because I had so many loose ends that applied to it that all got pulled together by this one reference.
1: Well, the thing that that um, is interesting is that uh, you're right. I mean, the the arms on those pillars are. I mean, they're almost, um, for want of a better word, you know, they're they're well, they're they're out of proportion. You know, they're just kind of thrown in there and. It's kind of hard to explain emotion in, in stone, though, too. I mean, although, although Michelangelo did a beautiful job and stuff like that, but, but when, when you're looking at, at these um, these figures and, and the fact that, that there it is a circle, so it does appear to be um, sanctuary-ish. but don't you mention something about burial on the tops of those pillars at some point in time for, for burial?
2: Well, at the Gobekli Tepe site, there was a burial tradition that carries forward with other cultures um, that looks like it was being practiced. Okay, The, the um, archaeologists understand that Gobekli Tepe was not a permanent residence. There was no source of water there that could have supported a yeah. uh, community. Um, they can see that they haven't encountered any um, cemeteries. They don't have any bodies. Uh, it wasn't a burial site. Um, they can see that it wasn 't a fortification that it wasn 't wasn 't there because of warfare, so that starts to whittle down the possible uses for the site now they they don 't typically go to instructional site even though they have benches for people to sit on and you know carved out of stone and set in stone and um, things like that so what they but what they do go to is the idea of a of a ritual site where people came for um you know annual pilgrimages or whatever. Um, but um, but there was a burial tradition there. That, uh, it looks as if um, when a person died, the body was left out to the natural elements for a period of time. Over the course of it, it takes about four days for natural elements to um, desiccate a body, to the flesh from a, from the bones. And quicker than that if they have birds of prey like vultures that come uh-huh. and and eat. Um, and then from there, then the bodies were, um, according to the later traditions, the skulls were separated from the bones, and the bones were dismembered or broken up and sometimes burned. And um, if you judge by the, other, the later cultures, they were buried in group uh, burial chambers that are hard to find. Uh, so well, that's the t- basically the Tibetan sky burial um, tradition.
1: Well, now, if... If this is a a sanctuary, if it is a place of learning and wisdom, and we've already figured that the, the period of time and study had to be a decade or two, where did the people who were studying there live? Very good
2: question. Well, it could be that they had built houses out of wood, um even even with a place like New York City where there are skyscrapers, 5,000 years from now, there would be no evidence whatsoever that there had been a skyscraper in New York City. If a thing I wasn't know. carved in stone, it didn't survive. So yeah. if they lived in, in houses of built of anything other than stone, we don't know about it.
1: Okay. I'll give you that one.
2: Now, it could I'm also just... be that they lived at some place a distance from from there, or maybe they came back, you know, same time every year for, you know, weeks of instruction
1: or whatever. Or, here's a weird one, Um, but since you can't prove any of it, why not throw something strange in? Right. What if Gobekli Tepe, what if it was a portal and it was, a portal to another dimension where there was a time differential so that they stepped through into another dimension where they got all of the information they needed and then stepped back in and went back to where they, their towns and villages, having spent years in one dimension and coming back into this dimension the next day in order to go back and teach their communities the stuff they learned.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> Well, you know the um, the story of Rip Van w- Rip Van Winkle um,
1: yeah. is a story
2: of somebody who that that sort of thing happened to. I
1: uh-huh. think that was written
2: by was that Nathaniel Hawthorne who wrote that. I'm trying to remember who wrote Rip yeah. Van Winkle. Um yeah. His father was from Orkney Island, so this was a ah. a fairy tradition from Orkney that was being relayed in the in the Rip Van Winkle story, and in that tradition. There were time differentials. That interactions with the fairies had very weird time stuff connected. Oh, Washington Irving. My wife uh, corrects me.
1: Ah, yes. Well, Hawthorne sounded good too.
2: Yeah, Hawthorne um, sounded good. Yes, she she's here to keep me from just making stuff up.
1: <laughs> yeah, Mark just sent me Washington Irving as well. So yes. nice to have somebody that's you know
2: fact checking, yeah, fact
1: googling really fast for us. <laughs> um, yes it just it, it to me it it just seems that during that time frame having to spend a decade or a lifetime uh studying to go back then you didn't have time to teach so it had to be knowledge that was given faster than that right um un- unless they were creating communities where where when somebody was ready they got sent back and someone else came or something like that
2: right um, and then we have the, the strange reports from various cultures that in very ancient times people lived longer than they do now. You know, in oh, Egypt, yeah. there are reports of people living nine hundred years.
1: Oh, so we, we don't know what's up,
2: <laughs> up with that. <laughs> As I say, there are there are more open questions that we can't answer than there are questions we can, and this is why periodically, when the right piece falls into place, an entire book sort of
1: falls out. No, it's just, um, I think what you've done is, is give people material to really, you know, sit back and and um, masticate and, and sort of um, pull into themselves. Because when you think about the wisdom that they were given, and, you know, it was during the second time that the grain and everything got distributed all over the place. It wasn't the first time.
2: No, it was the first time, actually, all of the um, the domestication of animals and domestica- pretty much all of the domestication of uh, plants happened in that same era with Fertile Crescent region around 10,000 B.C. I don't think there's been any animal that's been domesticated since that era successfully that wasn't domesticated then, or not very many. Um, and so... Um, but it, I see it as having been given in two rounds of instruction. The first round um, had its effects. So I'm right, working on a book right now that traces outward from Go Back tries to make the connection from Go Back to to Orkney, and there's a um, a very interesting path across the Mediterranean for that to have happened. And I'm try, I'm trying to piece together all the the details that support that that. It looks like there was deliberate colonization of major islands in the Mediterranean for agriculture just following the Gobekli Tepe era that eventually made its way to Orkney. And then classes that were trained on Orkney, the tradition was they were sent back where they came from. So you have um, um, influences that then come back into the Mediterranean from Orkney, you know, structures and forms that appear on Orkney that hadn't appeared in the Mediterranean before Orkney that suddenly turn up.
1: I, um, <clears throat> all of the, all of this seems to be dealing with a certain part of the globe. What about North America? I mean, it, well, South America, you have the cultures, you know, that, that feed right into the Egyptian type stuff and everything. But right. North America seems to be. Um,
2: there are a couple like. of different eras we're, we're talking about. These these um, these eras happen in twelve thousand year half cycles, according according uh-huh. to Buddhism. This connects to um, yuga cycle stuff, and so uh, John Anthony West wasn't certain that the pyramids weren't built um, a cycle or two before when they're traditionally thought to have been built. He thinks the Sphinx yeah. might have gone back as far as thirty thousand B.C. So That's in always these prior eras, the the problem is that the Ice Age serves as sort of a block to evidence. And so we we can't, it's very difficult to positively trace anything across the Ice Age. Right. But there may very well have been previous eras where things happened um, in North America or elsewhere. It looks like there was a lot of stuff happening up around the Arctic Circle in a prior cycle.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, now, after Orkney, we know around 2600 B.C., the people who are on Orkney sort of dispersed, and we can trace some of it positively southward. We have um, a house plan that turns up at Stonehenge just about the time they're putting up the Stonehenge stones that is an exact match in size and layout for a house at Scarabray on Orkney. We have inscriptions that are a match for Scarabray inscriptions and pottery that's a match for Scarabray pottery. So it looks like one of the places the people from Scarabray went at 2600 B.C. was down to uh, near Stonehenge. But Uh you go beyond that era and you see migrations that look like they happened outward from there in in various directions. Uh, You have Cherokee Indians associated with pygmies the same way that Orkney was associated with pygmies. And you have structures and words and so forth with Native American tribes that um, have some influences that seem to have come across from Asia in an earlier time, and then in a later era, influences that came from Orkney, I believe, came from Orkney down into um, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio type areas. Um, influences on the Hopi Indians in Arizona, influences on South America like the Olmecs and so forth, and influences yeah. out into Polynesia that don't show themselves until around, you know, as late as 1680.
1: What about what about um, Antarctica? Because, you know, the globe did have a slight tilt that changed, and, you know, that was land at one time.
2: The Inuits I mean, it, have very many, thing, many things in common with the symbolic tradition I'm talking about and the Orkney tradition uh-huh. I'm talking about. But um, if there had been prior cycled influences around the Arctic Circle, then, of course, that makes sense that that groups in there would be connected.
1: Yeah, the yeah I I've been fortunate enough to be above the Arctic Circle, and it really is an amazing place to be. Wow! Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's it's barrenly beautiful, actually. I've
2: been as far far north as Ketchikan, Alaska, and uh, the Faroe Islands, north of north and west of Orkney, but. That that's as close to Arctic Circle as I've gotten so far.
1: I heard Utqiagvik,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I haven't the faintest idea where it is, but I know it's above the Arctic Circle.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Iceland no, I, is certainly I, I, an interesting place.
1: Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Iceland is gorgeous. Um, I actually um, I, I spent a couple of days there, and and it is an amazing place and you know you get to all of these places that have the antiquity there and they have the history there if you if you take the 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 time to go searching for it and and again i keep coming up with the fact that that there is a cosmology here that and, and and you know the term cosmology kind of um throws people for a loop i yeah. don't know why but but you know but but it has to do with with spiritual philosophies about creation. Right. And 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 it it um, but cosmology is such a great word. So you know you just have to in parentheses sometimes you know remember that it's there. But but to me it it gives a richness to so much that's going on around the planet at this moment in time. And it, it enhances you know the desire for, for finding out why and how and, and looking for the richness and, and the stability that the cosmology that they had. They, they didn't need, I, I know the Dogon and the Maori, the Maori. you know, I, I read your book on the Maori. They didn't have a religion. They had a way of life. They had an understanding as to creation so that so that there was not a religion there and and they got along beautifully. They didn't need um the the controlling aspect that religion did did impose upon them. And what what's fascinating is you did make a mention as to how uh there there was the element of, of a matriarchal society and then a, a a togetherness of a male-female and then suddenly everything became patriarchal so that as as we come forward in time you lose the balance that you had with male and female and, and everything and a patriarchal society takes over and creates a religion and, and in many ways draws us away from the source of our own creation.
2: Right. And that changeover from, from uh fem uh, you know primary matriarchal to patriarchal is one of the examples of symbolic reversals that happen all around the world at about the same time um, that's also one of the things that helps me track approximate eras for for things and there's a reason for this uh changeover um, it's um it's hard to explain okay from a yuga cycle standpoint. We have a descending half-cycle where things are becoming more material, and we have an Mm -hmm. ascending half-cycle where things are becoming less material. So there's certain symbolism that relates to the non-material and certain symbolism that relates to the material. A good example is um, the figure of a circle relates to the non-material. The figure of a square relates to the material. I think I mentioned that before with the handbag issue. Now, in the early eras of the tradition, the 10,000 B.C. and just after eras, structures are built with circular bases because the circle that sits on the – okay, and during that early part of the the half cycle, um, the world we're living in is is less material than it is now, growing more material. And by the time you pass the midway of the – the era, you go to Orkney Island midway through the half cycle, and you have houses that combine a circular shape with a squared shape. You go a little bit farther on from there, and suddenly the major structures have square bases. So the Dogen have a, um, a stupa like shrine, just very much like a Buddhist stupa built to the same principles and evoking the same set of shapes and the same sequence with the same symbolism. The difference is that the Dogen structure culminates in a rounded base and the stupa culminates in a squared base. Now I know without asking that the round based shrine is the older form. It relates to the earlier part of the cycle where the squared based shape relates to the later part. Uh-huh. And so Based on that knowledge, I can say that the Great Pyramid was built during the second half of a, of a cycle, either the second half of a descending cycle, or um, the first half of an ascending cycle.
1: And what that is counts. the what is the what's the total year you know for that for the cycle to complete? How many years is it?
2: It's about twenty five thousand nine twenty, I think, is the total, and that, that's. that's- that's all the, the units perca- of time uh, that's,
1: yeah that's yeah, the, the processional cycle the grand- yeah, yeah,
2: that's the processional cycle, that's a cycle that where where it looks to us as if the constellations are moving slowly around us like a clock,
0: uh-huh. and
2: it takes twenty five thousand nine hundred twenty years for them to get back to where they started, right now, the scientists say that that's caused by a wobble, a slow wobble in the earth's rotation, but because there are certain stars like Sirius that don't precess, that can't really be true. If you've ever ridden on a merry-go-round as a kid, um, say, sat in the middle of the merry-go-round and look at things spinning around around you, everything around you is spinning. Or if you're sitting on the edge of the merry-go-round and there's another child in the center, everything spins except that child who's sitting right at the center of the rotation. Well, right. Sirius, Sirius doesn't precess, which says to me that... This can't be caused by a wobble because Sirius is, is sitting in the center of the rotation and it's being caused by something else. From my per, point of view, it's being caused by the rotation of this spiral Barnard's loop I talked about that sits, you, you can't see it with the naked eye, but you can see it with time-lapse photography. It sits uh-huh. centered right on the belt stars of, of Orion. And as that rotates, I think um, our whole view of the, the universe rotates. Um, mm. So this symbolism changes over time. As you get, um, I can say with certainty that the Great Pyramid was built during the second half of a cycle. I just can't say which one, which cycle.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, the
2: fact that it has no carved glyphs in it implies that it was writ- it was built before there was written language. Mhm.
1: Uh-huh.
2: But again, I Absolutely. don't know how yeah. how much before whether that was this cycle or a previous cycle. And right now, I don't have a basis for telling
1: yeah and I've now other uses, other yeah. symbols that
2: change there are a whole slew of other symbols that also migrate they're one way um in the early part of the cycle and they flip to another way in the second part of the cycle and People will ask me, you know how can all the cultures around the world know to flip those symbols I mean, we didn't think that the Polynesians had contact with the you know the people in uh the fertile Crescent region, things like that, and I say to uh-huh. them, imagine you get on an airplane in New York City and you fly to California. The chances are you don't know anybody on that plane, maybe one or two people. And the chances are you don't talk to more than one or two people on that plane. But by the time you get to California, everybody on the plane knows to change their watch three hours. Uh-huh. It's because they all know how time zones work. And when they got off the plane, they know the time, they're in a different time zone than they were before, and they switch their watch. That's the same way with these symbols. They all know how the symbolic eras work, and when it gets it's the appropriate time to flip the symbol, they all do it.
1: In our DNA, kind of.
2: No, just from the the symbolic tradition carries that that those concepts forward. So the the high priests are going to know um, when these changes should happen, but also. Um, the Yuga cycle concept says there are actual physical changes in the way we perceive things that during the, or, um, some eras of the cycle, we can perceive the non, non-material things better than we can in other eras. And during the eras when we're highly perceptive of non-material things, there's a more of a feminine um, slant on things. And during the periods when we where can, we, it's more where of a Where are monica.
1: we right now? Where are we, we right now?
2: From my point of view, okay, from, from the traditional Hindu perspective, we're about um twelve hundred years into the ascending cycle we passed bottom about a thousand or twelve hundred years ago. My so perspective north? is is that we have just now passed bottom that we're just now starting back up the ascending side
1: so things are becoming more and more of a spiritual
2: things should be get better from things should be get better from here in terms of um masculine and feminine sensibilities in the world that a lot of the bad things we see happening make it better Hmm?
1: that would be nice you know (laughs) of course you got 26,000 years to figure it all out so it's not going to happen overnight but it it is nice to think that there's a positive flow going on here Um, but you know I just we're getting close to the end here, and I, I just, um, first of all, I could talk all night to you about this stuff. <laughs> and um, it, it just, it seems to me that you've, you've, you've found a, a way to explain things that so many people question. And it's not, not, not necessarily then your absolute, but you certainly give a possibility that hadn't been out there for a very long time. And, and it gives people another way of looking at creation, um, which I think is a healthier way. It's a more expansive way because it gives us such a greater possibility of, of understanding what's going on universally, cosmically, as opposed to just here on the earth plane.
2: Right. So, and I think um, that's a, a healthier perspective to look at things from than, than the parochial one you know, that we're used to.
1: Oh, absolutely. I just, it, it's so exciting. And, and I really hope that somebody, you know, did some graffiti someplace, you know, like, like Kilroy was here in 1949, okay. you know, I, just, just to um, kind of give us an understanding as to just when this thing started. And, you know, they, they probably have. And it's probably the, the years someone has. I mean, something. like the
2: Hebrew, Hebrew calendar seems to start halfway through the cycle. And ah. we just... Okay, now, if it's a roughly 6,000-year half cycle, um, the Hebrew calendar is at uh, 57, 80 years, something like that. It's approaching 6,000 years.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, that'll work. Um, well, the, the book is Point of Origin, Gobleki Tepe and the Spiritual, the Spiritual Matrix for the World's Cosmologies. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, now, do you... Um, is there a website? I looked for a website for you. The only one I could find was GrahamHancock.com, and and he's got a, a place in there for you. But do you have your own no, website? I don't. There is a
2: LairdScranton.com, but it was a fan site, and it's not very well maintained, and it's not really my site. Um, the best places to find me or my books, um, I have two publisher websites, uh, pages. I'm on InnerTraditions.com has a Laird Scranton page. And okay. SimonandSchuster.com has a Laird scranton page. Actually, Amazon.com also has a Laird scranton page. Um, so Facebook nine is nine or
1: ten it, books.
2: Uh, Facebook is an easy place for people to find me. If they friend me on Facebook, then I'm usually available to answer questions or you know, through Messenger or through email or whatever. I'm happy to to hear what people have to say.
1: Well, I have a feeling you'll get many questions after tonight. So. Um, <laughs> You, you certainly have opened eyes and minds, hopefully. And, uh, you know, if 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 we've made people question, then we've done our job because, you know, just getting people to think is, you know, the only way to go here here in this field. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time and the energy to um, do a tutorial here for me.
2: Oh, sure. I'm happy and to do it. Thank you for inviting me to, to come on.
1: Well, it's it's so cool you've got so many books. I can, you know, have a year or two of, of you on a couple of times. To, <laughs> yes, the, to, the last
2: couple to, of years I've been uh, traditionally publishing a book and self publishing a book because the publishers work slowly enough so I have time to finish a second book before they get the first one published. And oh my they God. normally don't like to, to work on two at the same time. So,
1: Well, they're lost. But I want to <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Um, y- you've been spectacular. And I will um, this will go up on on uh, YouTube tomorrow, and I will send you the link to it so that you can share it with whoever you'd like to. And thank you so much for for taking the time and uh, sharing all of this wisdom with us because it's spectacular and, and uh, no way I could have put it all together for sure. so <laughs> I do thank you for being um, the teacher for the evening.
2: Well, thank you very much. As I said, I I always appreciate talking about, you know, I always like to talk about these subjects. So, And appreciate informed interviewers who ask all the right questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. So appreciate your sharing your time with us. Hope you've learned as much as I have. Um, We will be back tomorrow night. Mark has a wonderful show. And Wednesday night, So it's a a back-to-back-to-back shows for this week. Uh, We look forward to having you join us, and um, thank you so very much. Check the YouTube channel out. If you like what you see, please subscribe. Good night, everybody.